to the topics we read a few minutes ago in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 3, and reading from verse 1, we look at this section down to the beginning of verse 7. Last week we saw how the disciples plucked the ears of corn in the field and the Pharisees found fault with them. And we saw the principles that Jesus laid down as far as Sabbath keeping was concerned. Jesus said that what was necessary was lawful on the Sabbath, what was done for God was lawful, works of mercy were lawful. He said that the Sabbath was made for the good of man rather than man being made for the Sabbath. And he finally said that he himself was Lord also of the Sabbath. And yet in the story before us tonight, it is clear that in spite of all that Jesus has said, that these Pharisees are still trying to find fault with him. They're watching him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. And I would like tonight to look with you at the story of the healing of the man with the withered hand. And I would like to lay the emphasis tonight not so much on the Sabbath as on the Saviour. After all, we saw last week that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And it is surely profitable for us to look tonight at what our Lord does on the Sabbath day. If you look at the verses before us, you will find again and again that the emphasis is put on Jesus. The pronouns he and him are used at least ten times in the narrative. And I would like to take from that the idea that the emphasis that we ought to have tonight should be on Jesus himself. Now, having said that, there are five points that I want just to consider with you briefly this evening. And I'll try and make the sermon as simple and as straightforward as I can. The first point is this, where Jesus was. And the second, whom Jesus met. The third, what Jesus said. The fourth, what Jesus felt. Yes, felt. And the fifth, what Jesus did. And I think that if we hang our thoughts on these headings, that there might be something in our tonight that will be of some benefit to us. So the first point is where Jesus was. We read that he entered again into the synagogue. Now you might think that there was nothing startling about that. After all it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And yet, if you bear in mind the context, Jesus has just about had enough 
of the scribes and the Pharisees. He has found himself arguing with them. And he is painfully aware of their hypocrisy and of their opposition. And yet he doesn't make these things excuses for keeping away from the synagogue. The fact that they were in charge, the fact that they were hypocrites, the fact that they were his enemies was not used by the Lord as an excuse for keeping away. Jesus went to the synagogue in order that he might preach and in order that he might perform miracles. He went to the synagogue to glorify God. And it was very interesting that it was in the synagogue that we find Jesus performing this miracle. Now applying this to ourselves, I wonder if we like to be where God's people are gathered together to worship. Or you might say there's a lot of hypocrites go to church. And you're dead right. There's a lot of hypocrites go to church. You might say they've no time for me. These people who go to the house of God. I wouldn't judge as to whether that kind of statement is right or wrong. There's no doubt that you will find people in churches who don't care very much for the man and woman who's outside. But the word of God doesn't allow us to make an excuse of that for absenting ourselves from the public place of worship. Jesus has promised to be present for two or three gathered together in his name. And that ought to be incentive enough for us to join together to worship God. Where Jesus is, said the hymn writer, tis heaven fails. And surely, if we have any time for Christ, we want to be where he is to be found. And we will not be afraid of what people will say about us and we will not be ashamed of being identified with the worshipping people of God. Well I wonder if any of us know anything of what it is to be afraid of what people think of us for coming to public worship. I wonder if any of us in this church tonight are ashamed of being identified as Christ's. Let us never be ashamed of the gospel and let us join when to the house of God go up is said to us. So Jesus is found in the city. And I believe Jesus is found here tonight in order that he might meet with us. And that brings me conveniently to the second of the five points. Whom Jesus met in the synagogue. And I want to answer this question, who did Jesus meet, in two ways. 
First of all, we read that he met a man who had a withered hand. And then I think in verse 2 we can say that he met men who had withered hearts. A man with a withered hand and men with withered hearts. Now let me explain what I mean. Let's take each of these in turn. Luke tells us that it was the man's right hand that had been rendered useless. A hand that used to be healthy and strong is now rendered absolutely useless. It is weak and it is without strength. But it is interesting to find that the man with this hand is found under the instruction of Christ. He is not only looking for help, he wants to learn of God. There are some who think that he was a man who in the past was quite an active character and now is unable to do anything. And if that's true, then that reminds us of the way it is with many Christians. Sadly, there are Christians who are tonight in a backslidden condition, who once used to work for God, who once were employed in the Lord's service, and whose hands are tonight withered. I don't know if there's any such in here, but if there is, surely your desire ought to be to be renewed by God. There may be some we certainly know of some who were once active in the Lord's service and who have now rendered themselves inactive. Well, God can restore that person to his former usefulness. There are others who suggest that the man's hand had always been willing. And if that's the case, then it reminds us of the condition of man by nature. And of the fact that by nature we can do nothing to serve God until God changes our condition. Again, whichever way you want to take it, the important thing is that the man was present and that the Saviour was ready to meet him. He is always ready to meet with the man, with the woman, who realizes his and her need of his help. And so I ask you tonight, if you're backslidden, do you want to be restored? Do you want to be renewed? And if you've never known the Lord, do you want to find him? Do you want spiritual healing for your soul? Do you want to meet with Jesus? Well, Jesus met with this man. We will see what happened later on. But we notice that Jesus met with others in the synagogue as well. He met with the religious people who were watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day in order that they might accuse him. We can say that they were men with withered hearts. Men who had no time for Jesus who wanted to trip him up. 
There are at least nine references in the New Testament. I say at least because there may very well be more. To men tried to trap Christ. Tried to lay snares for Jesus. Those of us who were able to be here in the morning, we saw how the devil is always lurking around in order to devour the Christian. Well, we find tonight that men are also looking out for opportunities to trip up not only the Christian, but Christ himself. Try to find fault with the Saviour. And if they were like this with Christ, if they were watching Christ in order to try and find fault with him, how much more we who say with Christ ought to watch, as these men are certainly trying to destroy our Christian commitment in our day. Well, these men, they were there with this purpose in mind, to accuse Christ in order to be able to accuse of having done that which was wrong. And down through the centuries, Christians have been not only open to this kind of attack, but on many occasions, Christians have been brought to nothing as a result of the schemes of such people. Now I'm not going to say that we have any such person present in this congregation tonight. I would certainly trust and pray that none of us would ever have the spirit of the Pharisee, the spirit of the religious non-Christian who wants to trip up those who name the name of Christ. But I know that these have been present in every age and that we need to be on our guard from them. And so Jesus met them as well. He encountered that kind of individual. But we see next, not only where Jesus was and those whom Jesus met, but we see next what Jesus said. Jesus didn't stay silent when he met these men. Jesus spoke, first of all, to the man with the withered hand, and then to the men with the withered heart. What did Jesus say to the man with the withered hand? In verse 3 we read, He said to the man with the withered hand, Stand forth. Now that means stand up in the middle of the congregation. And stand up in a place where the people can see you. Maybe the man was trying to hide the fact that his hand was withered. Maybe he was trying to pretend that he was just as able-bodied as everybody else. But Jesus sees him. And Jesus knows that he has need. And Jesus makes the man confess his need in public. 
There are many Christians in a backslidden condition who try to hide that fact from others. There are many Christians who try even to cover up the sin of which they know they're guilty. The Bible tells us that he that covers up his sins will not prosper. We need to confess our sin. We need, if I can use a term that's often used today, we need to come clean. We need to confess our need of Christ. And I believe in this congregation tonight there are two types of need among us. Those of us who say we're Christians, all of us I believe, without exception, we need to be renewed in our Christian lives in order that we might become more like Christ. And if there's any Christian imagining that he or she doesn't need to be made more like Christ than he or she is, I would say that there's something radically wrong with your thinking. We all need to be made more like Christ than we are. And we need to confess that before the Lord, not only in private, but in public. That's why as I live in public prayer, I confess sin before God. Not only my own, but our collective sin, in order that God may forgive us, and in order that God may renew us. And so we need to come for a public confession of our need of more of Christ and of what he has for us. And as far as those who are unconverted are concerned, there is nothing that God may be longing for more than for you to make open confession of your need of Christ. You might, and I haven't intended to say this, but say it, I feel I must. You might tonight be here and deep down in your heart, you know that there's something wrong with you. You know that spiritually you need to be healed. Maybe you've even thought of, of asking some Christian that you know for help. And I would like to think that all who say they're Christians in our congregation would be willing to try and help you. I would like to think that. But maybe you're thinking, I don't want to bother them with my silly questions. I don't want you to bother them to waste their time. Maybe they can't help me anymore. Well, we can't heal you. That's for sure. But we can help by pointing to Christ. And it would be lovely, and there's, quite honestly, there's nothing I long for more than for somebody in the congregation to come and to say, how can I be made right with God? There's nothing that thrills a pastor's heart more than to have people come asking to be part 
to the way of salvation. There's nothing that gives us more of a thrill than to be able to point people to the Now maybe sometimes our highland reticence keeps us back from coming with these kind of questions. But you need certainly tonight before God to confess your need of him if you're not his. And I want you to know tonight that there are Christians in this congregation who are prepared to help you if you go to them and to do so in complete confidence. It is a healthy sign when in a fellowship of men and women there are those who are able and ready and willing to help others get right with God. And I would love to hear those who know that they need to save asking the age-old question, what must I do to be saved? Coming out and confessing need. And so this man comes out and this man confesses need. But maybe you're worried about doing that on account of what some people might think or even say and do. What will people think if they discover that I'm seeking the Lord? What will people say if they find out that I want to be a Christian? What will people do to me if I come after Christ. Well, people may think all sorts of things. And people may say and do all sorts of things. But Jesus has a word to say, not only to you, but to them. And Jesus will see to it that they who dare oppose dare try to thwart you as you seek the Saviour, he will see to it that they will be put in that place. And he fairly puts the religious people whom he confronts in our story tonight in that place. He says to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? To save life or to kill. Jesus is going back to the principle that we looked at last week, that it is good to show mercy on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying more than that. I believe Jesus is saying this, that if we don't do good, when the opportunity arises, then we're doing evil. If we don't Take the opportunities presented to us to do good, even on the Sabbath, then we're doing evil. If we don't go out of our way to save men and women, then we're guilty of murder. And that has all kinds of implications for the question of euthanasia, which is being raised in our society today. But Jesus is clear on it. 
that if we don't do what we can to save, then we are guilty of murder. And Jesus is saying to them, is it lawful to save life of the king? You people who are always stressing what's right, you people who are always laying down the law as to what's permitted on the Sabbath, you people who are always stressing minor things, are you not guilty of neglecting much more important things? Is it not lawful to do good? Is it not lawful to save life? Is it not lawful to help one another on the Sabbath? Now it's very interesting that the man in the story tonight, he wasn't dying. It wasn't as if he would have died if he hadn't been healed until the following day. The disciples wouldn't have died of hunger if they hadn't helped themselves to the cause. But you see, Jesus isn't saying that we've got to wait until people are at the point of death before testing them on the Sabbath. Not at all. He doesn't say that. What he says is, if they're in need, help them. If the opportunity arises to do good, do it. And in Matthew's account, Jesus speaks of the sheep that falls into the pit. And he says, which one of you won't rescue your sheep if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Of course you will rescue it. You won't leave it there. How much more is a man better than a sheep? Now don't take from that that the Lord wasn't interested in sheep. Of course he was. Very interested in sheep. And he cared very much for sheep. The Lord cares for the animal. He preserved man and beast. God is good to the animal as well as to the human. But the Bible stresses that man is much more important to God on account of the fact, as we saw the other evening, that man is created in God's image. And as I said then, man is not a higher form of animal. Man and man alone is created in the image of God. And so Jesus turns to these men and says, Is it not lawful for me to help this man on the Sabbath? And how do they react? They're silenced before him. But they held their peace. I think there's two things there and I'll just mention. They don't want to admit the fact that what Jesus is saying is true. But on the other hand, they don't dare demand it. They don't want to admit to it on the one hand, and they don't dare deny it on the other. And so they're silent before God. You believe the word of God. As far as those who would try to criticize or condemn you for being associated with Christianity are concerned, your critics will be silenced. Just as true as these critics were silenced. And they would be silenced at last on the great day when they appear before God and have nothing to say in their own defense.
and you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. But we know what Jesus felt. What Jesus felt. He looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. There are two things that Jesus felt according to these words. First of all, he felt anger. There are some who try to tell us that there's no word of God's anger in the New Testament. Those who try to tell us that Christ was never angry. And they're wrong. Christ was angry. Christ knew what it was to burn with holy indignation. He threw out those who were abusing the house of God. And he was angry with those who dared take to do with those whom he was trying to help. He was angry with them. Now let's be careful as far as following Christ's example is concerned. There is a place for intolerance within the Christian church. Intolerance of evil. There is a place for that. The church must be intolerant of evil. The Christian must be intolerant of evil in his own heart. And so there is a place for anger at that level. But as far as our anger is concerned, the Bible is this. And we can't quote better than the Bible. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your father. Jesus was angry, and yet there was no sinfulness in his anger. I've never been angry without sin. I've never yet managed to fulfill the biblical injunction to be angry without sin. I wonder if anyone here has. But not only did he feel anger, Jesus also felt grief. The two went together. He was grieved. But what was it that grieved? It was the hardness of the Pharisaical heart. Their stubbornness. Their blindness. Their ignorance. Their reaction. Now I wonder tonight if Christ is grieved with the reaction of anyone here to this God. Because according to scripture, Christ is grieved when men and women won't accept. Christ said on another occasion, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. There's nothing causes God more grief than for men and women to reject the gospel and for men and women to harden their hearts under the gospel. And I'll be quite astonished 
if there's no one here of whom it is true that his heart is not hardening under the word of God. And I want you, if tonight you are hardening under the word, if you are, I want you to know what Jesus feels about that heart. If tonight you are willfully rejecting the gospel, turning a deaf ear or a blind eye to it, you could do nothing to cause out more grief than that. That's what Jesus felt. Anger and grief. But next and finally we see what Jesus did. Where Jesus was, whom Jesus met, what Jesus said, what Jesus felt, and now what Jesus did. There are several things. First of all, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. In other words, Christ gave a command. The man complied, and his hand was cured. There's nothing impossible with the Lord. The man doesn't say, but I can't stretch out my hand, it's withered. As the command came, so he complied, and he knew the cure. Now let me apply that to again. God is calling on those who have wandered away from him to come back to him. He gives you no place for saying, I can't come back. He's commanding you to come back. O sons of men, return. And that you hear that command. You come back to Christ. And you will receive more than you thought possible. As the blessedness you knew when first you saw the Lord is restored to your soul. What about the unconverted person? What does God command all men everywhere to do? Not just some men, not even those who hear the gospel, but all men. He calls upon all men everywhere to repent and believe, to come to himself. And he gives you no reason at all to say, I can't. After gospel is preached, it is God's power up to salvation. He doesn't give you an option. As he commands, you are to comply to come and to be cured. He doesn't want you to stay away. He doesn't want you to disobey. Your duty is to believe. Your duty is to accept. I'm not going into all the theological complexities tonight of inability and so on because I don't believe that that is you know, the point that I ought to stress in this sense. But I ought to that in the service is the power of God to do the impossible. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the man to do what he did. But by the power of God, he was able to do it. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for a sinner on his own to come to Christ. But by the power of God, he comes. And if you say tonight, well, I haven't come yet and I can't come, ask the Lord to send forth his word, and he will not only bring you to himself, but he will be 
sends his word, then heal, and then from their destructions, dreams. I don't find Christ saying, keep clear, keep with it. Christ comes, and Christ says, come to me. I read some of this verse, O sinners, come to Jesus. All other trust is vain. Your every hope must fail you unless you're born again. You need the cleansing fountain to purge your heart within and purify your conscience from all the stain of sin. Will you come tonight and will you be cleansed by Christ? Through thy diseases all and pains, get healed and be relieved. But that's only one of the past. Not only does Jesus do this for the man, Jesus also incurs the wrath of those who were there. This is what he does to them. This is the reaction that we find coming from them when the man is cured. The Pharisees went forth and immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. Luke tells us very interestingly that they were filled with madness. They went into an unholy rage when they saw what happened. And according to this gospel, they went and they took powers with the Herodians. Now you say, who were the Herodians? The Herodians were those who looked after the interests of the world and who were the servants of King Herod. And normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians were each other's most bitter enemies. They couldn't stand on another world. They were all the and yet, when it comes to Christ, they combine together against them. The Pharisees were, as it were, the upholders of the religious side of the nations of the And the Herodians took it on themselves to look after the more secular or social side. And the one couldn't stand the other. But here they come together against Christ. Now do I really have to refer to the psalm we were singing just before the sermon? A psalm that reminds us of the reaction of those who are against Christ. Kings of the earth and princes combine to plot against the Lord and his anointing. It doesn't matter tonight whether we're religious or worldly. I mean religious in a non-Christian sense with the Lord's end. And we're bent on one thing and that is the destruction of Christianity. Saul of Tarsus was a very religious man. But his intent was to destroy the Christians. The Pharisees and the Herodians to counsel together how they might destroy him. That was their aim. That was their desire. I would pray that there's no one here of that kind of spirit. But I know that there are men and women in the world tonight of this kind of spirit. 
because they were unwilling to have him in them. If you're just curious about Christ, then he may withdraw from you as well, if it's only curiosity. If you're unwilling to have Christ in your life, he will certainly withdraw from you. But in our story tonight, we find him withdrawing from those to find fault with us. And not only does he withdraw, but his disciples go with him. Now I wonder this evening what our reaction is to Christ. I believe that we're presented with only two choices tonight as we come face to face with Jesus. The choices are these. On the one hand, that we be restored by Christ, as the man had his withered hand restored. Restored either to what we once had, or restored in the sense of coming to know the God from whom in Adam we fell. The only alternative to that is that we will know Christ taking his leave of us, withdrawing from us. My spirit, says Jesus, will not always strive with man. Jesus also tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. There have been communities, there have been tents, where God was once present, and where tonight he's absent. There were churches that were filled and have now been raised to the ground. The Lord has removed the candlestick from their midst. It hasn't happened here yet. Praise the Lord for that. And we're encouraged to see tonight that so many have come to hear the gospel. But let's be warned that if we will not proceed, then we will withdraw. I hope that none of us want to make Christ withdraw from us. That none of us want grieve him in that way, but that we want him to come, and that we want to restore us into his image, in which we were made in the first place, and from which we fall on account of sin. And so as I conclude this sermon tonight, I ask the question, has Jesus done anything for you? If he has, praise him for it and ask that you will know more of his work in your life. If he has, he's willing tonight to meet you, to deal with you, and to make you his own. And where God begins that work, he will bring it to perfection in the day of Christ. That then is just a little of what we are told in this narrative 
above the law of the Sabbath. What a Sabbath this day would be for us if we came to know Jesus for ourselves. I trust that all will be able to say tonight about Christ, my Lord and my God, will you go with this man? And she said, I will. Will you go with Jesus, who is called Christ? Or will you all go away and follow no longer the choice is used now? Choose him. Follow me and know throughout eternity. Amen. Lord, the choice is brought to our attention again tonight that we have to move. May thy spirit work in our hearts and may we all say that we will follow the Lord. The fact be that the disciples followed thee when thou